So tonight we are on our final session of this very unique, very, uh, to me anyway, deep study on spiritual beings. And uh, as we arrive at session seven, we are um, showing how, and you'll see this as we progress tonight, but showing how it all leads up to Jesus, that um, everything in the Bible, uh, Jesus is at the climax of it all. And so, um, so we're going to discover that tonight, but I just want to refresh our memory so that we can get in the, ra- the right uh, mindset as we look at this. And remember that in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And uh, we've been talking about this every week, that in, he set uh, rulers in those uh, realities, in the spiritual realm and in the earthly realm. He set spiritual beings in the heavenlies, and he set human beings on the earth. And the goal is for them to reign and rule and have dominion over uh, that area. Um, and then we see some rebellion take place. We see in Genesis 3, uh, the fall of man. Uh, We see in Genesis 6 the fall of some of the spiritual beings uh, that fell from heaven and uh, they came to earth earth and they deceived people. We see see several of those and we've kind of traced all of that out um, and just really trying to gain an understanding of why is this in the Bible? What does it mean? Um, and a lot of it is, you know, especially some of the weeks is heavy. You know, it's a lot of content. Other weeks we can kind of swallow and grasp it a little bit. But um, the goal is not to understand everything perfectly, um, but just to, to realize that it's there and that we need to talk about it, think about it, pray about it, read more about it, not just skim over some of it. And so while tonight is, you know, focusing on Jesus, let's don't just be so, okay, well, I know that Jesus is the answer and I know he's the Messiah. Let's, let's open our hearts to see maybe a new angle of why he is the Messiah. What does it mean that he died and rose again? What's, what is it about this resurrection? What is it that we are now uh, a new creation in Christ? Why, why do we need to even be a new creation? Let's just think through all of those tonight as we dive into it. And so session seven, as you see in your notes, it's talking about a new humanity, uh, a new humanity. Why, why do we need a new humanity? Well, it's because we'll discover that in Genesis 3, the fall of man, that, that, that when we say the fall of man, man literally fell. Like we fell from this uh, Eden type garden, highest place on the earth to the dirt. And so, uh, and so we're going to see those things and see why we, in order to be restored back to fellowship with God, that there needs to be a new, a new humanity. And so um, you see here in the opening paragraphs that throughout our series, we've been exploring how spiritual beings fit into the storyline of the Bible and how this is an important theme. And so we need to understand how important this theme is in understanding the mission and identity of Jesus. And we're going to see that tonight, how it all leads up to Jesus. And so in these final study notes, we're going to see how the story of Jesus brings, uh, brings the fulfillment of the story of all humanity as presented in Genesis 1 through 3 in particular. Um, and then in his death and his resurrection, Jesus opens up the new way for a new hum- humanity that is both human and spiritual. Okay, And so um, we're going to see that tonight. First, how we're going to do it is I want us to kind of get a big picture idea and then we're going to zoom into it. So how this biblical story works okay so when we turn uh to the four gospel accounts of jesus in the new testament we see that he is presented as um you know the one in whom the entire biblical story is going to reach its climatic goal like he is the climax right um well the uh story of god's covenant promises to israel's ancestors people like abraham moses and david is taken up by jesus as he announces this arrival of god's kingdom 
Um, but we want to see tonight that his mission to Israel fits within an even larger drama, namely the cosmic rebellion of human and spiritual rebellion that is narrated in Genesis 1-11. through And we've mentioned before Genesis 1-11, through the whole Bible traces back to Genesis 1-11. through um, And so this, narr- this narrative's about Jesus assume the reader will understand his story within both of these larger plot lines. And so to get a better understanding tonight of who Jesus is and why he came and what he fulfilled, we're going to zoom out a little bit and look at some bigger storylines. And so we're going to start wide and broad, and then we're going to gradually work our way in. And you see the chart here of this cosmic storyline in Genesis 1 through 11. uh, And then it kind of zooms in a little bit to Israel's storyline and then Jesus' story right there at the center. So we're going to take a step out. And uh, as much as we can, we're going to talk about the cosmic storyline And then we're going to see how it's just leading up to Israel's storyline, which is leading up to Jesus's story. Uh, And so we're going to explore these bigger uh, plots um, before we get to Jesus. So we're going to dive in first to the cosmic storyline. And it says that God's purpose is to partner with humanity as his image bearing representatives so that they can rule over creation on his behalf. And so we're going to read it in a minute in Genesis, but that's the goal here, okay? God intended for us as humans to rule with him so that we are his image-bearing representatives and we rule over all creation on his behalf. And we see that clearly in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 28. It says that then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So we see how we were made. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created human in his image, and in the image of God, he created them, created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and rule over every living thing that moves uh, on the earth. So we see God's goal here, his intention here, what, what we are sp- supposed to do and be is that we are to rule with God over creation, that we are his representatives. And so I want us to notice that God elevates humans uh, from the dirt to a realm of his divine throne by placing them in a royal mountain temple called Enid. Eated. And uh, that's Hebrew for delight. So we, when we say eated, that is Hebrew for delight. Okay, and so a reference that we can write down, we're not going to read this one, but you can write it in your notes. Um, Genesis 2, 7 through 9. Genesis 2, 7 through 9. Um, and throw verse 15 in there as well. Genesis 2, 7 through 9 and verse 15. That's kind of where we get to see where God placed us uh, from the dirt in the garden. Um, and so di- just so you can kind of see that there. Um, you do see in your notes... Um, this um, geograph of the world in the Hebrew Bible. Like, I want us to kind of notice this graph here um, and how uh, Genesis 2 maps this out. Uh, you've got the dry land. You've got Enid, Eded, sorry. And you've got the garden of Eded. You've got the tree of life in the middle. And then how that compares to the promised land and Jerusalem and the Temple Mount and the holy place and the holies of holy. So um, you see a lot of comparison Um, in the garden and in the beginning there uh, to things we're going to read about in just a moment. So this is just going to help us understand uh, the meaning of like the tree of life. When we talk, when when you read scripture and and it says like the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. Well, that represents now um, 
the holy place. And so humans are commissioned to rule and tend to this garden on God's behalf uh, to fill the land. We read that in Genesis 1. We're to fill the land. And so God gives them access to things like the tree of life um, that is immortal life that transcends earthly origins and um, its origins as a mortal creature. So, um, so essentially in Genesis, uh, we need to establish tonight that in Genesis, God originally wanted us to be in this garden and that there was a tree of life there. This represented eternal life. It was uh, spirituality. And then there was a tree of good and evil. And man chose, as we're going to keep reading, we're going to see the fall of man. But man uh, was deceived by a spiritual being. Man chose to, to take on this. Well, I, I, I'm not going to trust God in this. I'm just going to depend on my own wisdom and my own abilities and eat of this. And then thus he fell. They fell out of this. And so that's kind of the big, like, that's what we need to know. The big nugget is that we were elevated. We were in this uh, state where we were walking with God. Adam and Eve walked with God. And so we were in this high temple mount place. And when sin came in and we fell, we literally fell down to the dirt. And that's when the Bible says, you will return to the dirt. You're going back to the dirt. You're going back to this place um, because you can't, in your current state, be in my presence like this. You can't live uh, with all this power and authority and rule and be corrupted like this. And so we're going to see how this corruption is trying, is, is, there's an attempt to redeem it all throughout the scriptures. And every human that's, that, we, that um, Israel thinks is going to be it, it, they fail every time until we get to Jesus. And so uh, I want us to just see that God is aiming to restore us to this state and Jesus, as we know, makes this possible. So let's just look briefly in your notes at humanity's calling so we can kind of understand this. We've kind of, I've kind of hit it over and over so far. But uh, Genesis 1 and 2 depicts God as offering mortal humanity, that's us, the chance to rise above their mortal origins in the dirt so they can become God's eternal partners in ruling the world together. That's the goal. Remember, we're ruling the world together. We're eternal partners. Um, if we look at Psalm 8, as we see in our notes here, uh, you see how blown away the writer is, is by God's generosity, how he's granting us this ability. Um, if you see in your notes, Psalm chapter 8, uh, this, po- this poem here, um, notice, we're not going to read all of it for sake of time, but notice how it starts off with the word majestic there, describing our God as majestic. And I'll tell you why that's bolded in just a minute. But go down to where it's bolded, where it says, you have made him. And now he's talking about man. He's talking about man. He's saying, for, for, human, for humanity, for us, you have made him a little lower than the spiritual beings. And we talked about all those spiritual beings. And yet, you have crowned him with glory and majesty. Notice the wording there. The same word up, up top, majestic, to describe our Lord, we as humans have been crowned with that glory and that majesty. These same words that we use to describe God. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. Well, what's the works of, his, of your hands? Well, that's up, up above in a few verses. It says the heavens, the works of your fingers, the, the moon, the stars, you've ordained them. So he's saying that yet we're a little lower than the spiritual beings, yet we rule over them. That we're, even though we're made lower than them, we still rule over them. And for humans, he has put all things under his feet. And then if you notice there, he ends that in Psalm 8 with the word majestic again. Just to reiterate that God is majestic and that us as humans, he's crowned us as majestic. And so, um, so anyway, so I think it's just, again, this 
calling that we have uh, to rule over uh, this, these spiritual beings, to rule over the earth. Um, and, uh, and so even though we're a little lower than the spiritual beings, we rule over them. It's almost that same principle we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Remember we talked about the latecomer ruling over the earlycomer and how this biblical, there's this biblical storyline there. Uh, so that's kind of what's, what's happening there. Um, but I just wanted us to note Psalm 8 uh, because that just shows us how uh, we also have that glory and majesty. God gives us, gives us that um, even though that's a characteri- characterization of himself. He's wanting to give that to humanity um, and so, uh, so anyway, so that is um, our calling there. A couple other things I want you to note that's not in your notes is that um, this ability to rule with God, this ability to have this eternal state is a gift, that this is not something that we earn. Uh, it is a gift, and we're going to see that, uh, especially as we get to the New Testament, about the gift of salvation and eternal life. Uh, but even in the Old Testament, uh, we're seeing that all of this is God's gift to us, um, and this gift of eternal life is freely given so that humans can rule with God forever. Um, and so that's why we have this gift of eternal life. It's because God wants us to rule with him forever. Um, and so uh, as you keep going, you'll see where humanity disobeys God. Uh, this is, again, that fall that we talked about. Um, it says here in your notes that when humanity is deceived by a spiritual being, um, God reminds the humans their loss of access to eternal life which will result in exile and death. And so here's the scripture that I referenced earlier in Genesis 2. It's in the bold, bolded part there. It says, Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, from, from you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. So remember, God elevated them to the garden, and now because of sin, they're now back down into the dirt, into the earth. Um, and so um, just notice there that the key points here are that humanity's return to the dust is a return to their mortal origins in the dirt. This is not a demotion of a perfect humanity. Rather, it is the consequences that represent a loss, loss of destiny that God wants for us as humans. So this is the consequences. Sin has consequences. And because the wages of sin is death, because there's consequences to our actions, um, we had to be removed from that environment. And so now the Bible is just this redemptive story of us tr- being redeemed back to God. And we, as we already know, as we know the end, Jesus will make this possible to us. And so you see a conclusion paragraph there about the cosmic storyline that just really sums it up very well. This is the big picture here. We, we need to know tonight that God made humanity as his partners and they are to be representatives who rule over creation on his behalf. And so while humans are mortal dirt creatures, if you will, God invites them into his own divine presence and gives them the opportunity to transcend their mortal origins. Um, and eternal existence is not an inherent uh, property of the human nature as we see in Genesis 1-2, but rather mortal humans are given the gift of eternal life. And we are warned about the kind of behavior that will ruin the gift. And so when we see in Genesis 3, when humans foolishly join the rebel spiritual being in Genesis 3 and, and take their own knowledge of good and bad, they both rebel against God and also take a cheap substitute for the tree of life. They would rather have their own wisdom than God's gift. Okay, And so as we see, there's this act of severe mercy that God, he exiles the humans so that they don't get to live eternally in their corrupted state. And they're sent away from the garden to the realm of the dirt and where they will return from. And so that's, that's just the, the fall of man, if you will. Uh, you'll see it says God's mission uh, 
uh, is to restore humanity to their lost calling, to reinstate them as his image-bearing partners who can rule over the world in the divine power of immortal life and love. And so that's really a summary of what's going on here in the world. While we have the Bible, why Jesus came, all that is to restore us. The, the, the lesson just puts it very elegantly and, and uh, maybe a lot more uh, sophisticated than I would preach it to you. Um, it's, it, that, that is the goal here of, of the gospel of Christianity uh, is to restore humanity to their lost calling. And what is that calling? It's to, to be an image bearer, it's to be uh, ruling over uh, creation, to be with God, uh, walking with him. And so uh, the solution that we see in God's purposes is to raise up a seed uh, through, from the woman. And we talked about seeds before and the, how the enemy is coming to corrupt the seed. He's tried, it's a seed war from, from the garden. It's been a seed war all the way until now. Um, and so uh, there's going to be a seed that will rise up. We read that in Genesis 3.15. Who's going to overcome spiritual evil? Uh, and so we see that uh, person being Jesus. And so uh, we're not there yet, but we're going to talk about Israel's storyline just for a moment. So we could see how um, God gave us glimpses throughout uh, the people of Israel of people that were uh, not Jesus, of course, but were, were, they almost were there, but then they fall short. And it's just this biblical principle that a human can't do this. A human can't be the one that's, re, that's restoring us back to, to God. It has to be a new human, one that's not just flesh and bones, but one that is 100% man and 100% God. And so uh, we know that knowledge going into this, but the people of the Bible did not. And so when you have people rise up um, like Noah, like the family of Abraham, we're going to read some of those guys. Uh, they're like, could this be it? Is this the one? And then you have God giving prophecies and uh, blessings and all this. And they're like, okay, maybe this is him. Maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the Messiah. And then they fall. And then like, okay, well, no, they're not. And so, uh, but this is all just a precursor to Christ. It's all leading up to Christ. And so, um, so in Israel's storyline, you, you'll see the seed, you'll see the bloodline, you'll see the lineage um, and we've even talked about that before, how, um, how even right now with current events, and they're nothing new, but just the attack on Israel, it's attack on the seed, it's attack on the bloodline, it's attack on the lineage uh, and the land actually as well. Uh, so you see here throughout the Hebrew scriptures, uh, we are introduced to a whole lineup of heroes and heroines who for a brief moment are presented as a potential candidate for the promised seed that is referenced in Genesis 3.15. Um, and each narrative character steps onto the stage with a great promise and hope but only to fail and to lead the story as, simple, as, as a simply an image or pointer to the anticipated seed of the woman who will fulfill the promise, which is Christ. So real fast, you'll see Noah. Noah comes on the scene in Genesis 5 uh, through 9. And we see in, in Genesis 5, 29, uh, that, it, that God said, he'll call his name Noah, saying, this one will give us comfort from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. Um, and we see that, that Noah actually fell short. This isn't in your notes, but if you write down Genesis 9, verse 20 through 24, Genesis 9, verse 9, I'm sorry, Genesis 9, verse 20 through 24, shows us the failure of Noah, where he, he actually replays um, the failure of Adam and Eve. He plants a garden. The Bible says he, he planted a vineyard and he got drunk. Um, and so he, he uh, drank his own supply is what happened, and he got drunk. And so, um, so he failed in, in there. So you can read more about that on your own time. But Noah didn't fulfill it. Then you've got the family of Abraham come on the scene in a lot of chapters in Genesis 12 through 25. And you see this, um, 
this blessing in, uh, of, of this, you know, and I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. And so shall you be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you. And, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And you and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, so we see this, but yet twice, yeah, twice Abraham, um, he uh, betrays his wife, right? Um, he does that. Um, he, then Sarah, he oppresses her, that slave, Egyptian slave, and exiles her and her son. Uh, so we see a lot of, uh, you know, Abraham falls. Uh, we see uh, another descendant of Abraham, uh, Joseph. If you want to write, if you want to learn more about Joseph, Joseph is in Genesis 37 through 50, um, the, the life of Joseph there. That's Jacob's son. Um, they think he's going to uh, be the one. Because he's presented as a beloved son who was rejected and persecuted by his brothers, but exalted by God from the pit to rule over nations. And then Joseph has that dream in Genesis 37 uh, that's just hinting back to humanity's lost calling uh, to rule over heaven and earth as God's partner. So they think Joseph might be the one, but he, he isn't. Um, and you see in your notes in Genesis 37, there it is uh, a reference to that. Um, and you'll see some other scriptures uh, in, Genesis, in Genesis 41 there, uh, talking about Joseph. Uh, then you see Moses, and same, same picture. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but uh, Moses is presented as a royal priest who confronts human and spiritual evil among the nations. Um, and so we see him. He's the high point of Moses' career as Israel's leader. He comes, um, he, he comes when he offers his own life for Israel's sin. Um, and so again, same kind of, a lot of the same language of, of Christ. You know, you got Moses offering up his own life for Israel's sin, just like Christ was offering up his own life. Uh, you see Moses presented as a royal priest, as Jesus is, is the actual royal priest. So, um, you know, there, there's people that rise up that, that God's given them a taste of what's to come, but they fall short. So the, the big goal is that no human can live up to what, what needs to happen. There needs to be a new humanity, a new um, human. You know, the word Adam means humanity. And so there needs to be a new, a new Adam. And we're going to read scriptures about the new Adam as we get to the New Testament. Uh, oh, you got David in here as well. You see that? Uh, David, um, and there's Psalm 89 uh, talking about him. Um, look at some of the bolded words and just how it, it, it compares to Christ. You know, David, my servant, anointed him. You know, it says, I shall also set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of all the earth. And so I will establish his seed forever and his throne as the days of heaven. And so we now know, reading back on that, we're like, well, that's just prophecy about Christ. But in the moment, they were like, okay, is he the one? Is this it? You know, uh, and so, um, but like I said, we, we, can, we have hindsight there. Um, and so the, this, this poem here in, in, in Psalm 89, I think it's interesting to note that this is just reflecting back on God's promises to David in 2 Samuel, uh, and it's linking together this cosmic storyline of Genesis 1 through 3, um, you know, God calling David to be a new human uh, who would be exalted as God's, uh, you know, partner in this and, and all that. So uh, you also see in Psalm 110 there uh, some references about sitting at my right hand and you'll be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, so you see all this stuff that's just kind of leading up to this. Um, I did find interesting, you'll see a, a, a graph here, a chart, if you will, uh, of David in 2 Samuel, Adam and Eve and Cain in Genesis and the sons of God in Genesis. you see that in your notes? Um, and so just look at some of the comparisons here. We've compared uh, some of Adam and Eve and Cain, especially Cain, uh, with the sons of God and some of the language there. But notice 
notice what it's saying in this chart um, to compare these two. Notice the bolded words here, how you know King David, um, from his roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was, it was very good appearance. And then you skip on down to the next one, it said, next bolded word. It said, David sent his messengers and took her. Then you go over, I mean, go on down to 2 Samuel uh, 12, 9. It says, you know, why, are you why have you despised the words of Yahweh by doing evil in his eyes? And then down at the bottom it says, you've taken his wife to be your wife and have murdered him with the sword. And so you see these parallels, this language, this repetitive vocabulary also in, in Genesis with Adam and Eve and Cain. You see, all the, you see those, desirable of sight, woman, saw, good, delight in his eyes, you know, all these words. And then you also see that in Genesis 6. And so... Um, it's important to note that through this repetition of key vocabulary, the sin of David is set in comparison with the rebellion story in Genesis 3 through 6. And so just as humanity forfeited its access uh, to the tree of life that we see early on in Genesis and partnership with God in ruling the world, so now David loses his chance to embody God's rule over the nations just as the sons of God violated the boundary between heaven and earth. So also David forfeits his chance of becoming the promised seed that would rule over heaven and earth. And so just, that's some interesting uh, insight for us. So let's read the conclusion paragraph to better understand all that we just kind of waded through there about Israel um, and Israel's storyline. So all the narrative characters are presented as images of the anticipated seed. I think that's important for us to note that all of these were just anticipated seed of the woman that's promised in Genesis 3, verse 15. Uh, in very different ways, they all replay the sins of their ancestors and they forfeit the calling God has placed on Israel to mediate God's eated blessing to all nations. Israel's exile from the promised land, which happened in two waves, there's the references, uh, replays the exile of Adam and Eve from the garden. And so notice that there, uh, the, the exile from the promised land uh, replays the exile from the garden. Uh, these portraits of humans at their best in the figures of people like Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and David stand in the Hebrew scriptures as an anticipatory images of the one who is to come. Uh, and so we won't talk much about Daniel 7, but one book in the Hebrew Bible uh, specifically picks up all these images and combines them into one complex mosaic, namely the Son of Man, and we know who that is, uh, this Son of Man figure in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, and I just put a little bit of the um, scripture reference there. You see Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Um, uh, this, is a very, this is where we see the original human calling restored to a figure who will rule alongside God as an internal partner, this everlasting rule of the son of man. It'll take uh, place after the beastly evil of human empires has been done away with. All this has been done away with. And... and um, so that the rule of God and the Son of Man will, will be the one that remains. And so that's just something interesting that these, these two storylines come to a head, this Israel storyline and cosmic storyline all come to the head in Daniel 7, and Daniel re reveals this Son of Man. And that's where we're going to start getting into Jesus as the, son, as the ultimate seed there. And so stick with us a little bit more as we, um, as we get into Jesus' storyline. Uh, again, this is all leading up to Jesus, and God is trying to restore his calling to humanity to rule over heaven and earth, um, and which is only going to be possible through God's gift of eternal life. Um, so, Jesus' storyline. 
The four gospel accounts in the New Testament all portray Jesus in their different ways as the one in whom all these these promises find fulfillment. So here it is. All these promises that God has promised throughout the ages is about to be fulfilled. And this is why the the stories emphasize Jesus' conflict with spiritual evil from the very start. Now, we've referenced some scriptures throughout our last six studies of Jesus confronting spiritual evil and Jesus ruling over this spiritual evil, dominating them. And this is where we're seeing uh, why, why this is going to happen or why this needs to happen. And so we see Jesus' divine human identity, this new human, if you will. Um, I hit the button. Uh, Tricky, tricky. All right. So before we uh, jump into that scripture that you see in Luke 1, verse 35, we're going to read that in a minute. Uh, But to set that up for us, I think it's important for us to kind of see how we got here real quick. So after a bunch of these heroic failures, if you will, from from the Hebrew Bible, the gospel presents God's surprising solution to this cosmic crisis. Okay. Here's the solution of this crisis and the failure of Israel. The creator God who called Israel into being will himself become human. This is, this is what is so unbelievable that the creator God is going to become human in the person of the divine son. Okay, so Jesus will be the humanity that we could not be for ourselves. Okay, and he will be Israel in order to fulfill its calling to the nations. And so the gospel writers present Jesus' conception So we're going to see that. We see that in Luke 1. By the Holy Spirit as the way that the creator God enters into and becomes one with his human creation. So look at Luke 1 verse 35 with me. And it says, The angel answered and said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy One to be born shall be called the Son of God. Okay, so we see now that from this, that Jesus is now uh, being something that we could not be, this divine human, okay? And so let's, let's keep reading uh, about Jesus as the ultimate divine human partner. Um, as before we read these scriptures that you see in your note, recall how the plot tension of Genesis 1-3 was created by the need for a human who, couldn't, who, could, who could partner with God and transcend death himself because before um, man fell. There was no need to die because we were this spiritual being, eternal life with Christ, walking, I mean, with God, walking with God. And so not only does um, Jesus have to come on the scene and fulfill this, uh, what humans couldn't do to restore us back to God, to live up to this, Jesus has actually got, has to conquer death in order for this to happen. And so we're going to, as we continue to read this, we're going to see. Um, the importance of his death, because he has to transcend death itself. Itself, And so the Gospels portray Jesus as the one in whom Yahweh, that's the God of Israel, is coming among his people to accomplish this very task. And I want us to read Mark uh, 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, and then 9 through 11 in your notes, uh, just to see how the Gospels set this up. This is just to empower us tonight to, to prove that Jesus is uh, the answer to this. It says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, and he's now quoting Isaiah. Behold, I send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So that's a prophecy from Isaiah being quoted again in Mark. And then if you read on down, it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this isn't a part of our notes, but I I love this passage 9 through 11 because this is a picture of the Trinity right here. And so just for reference, if anybody ever uh, asks about the Trinity, talks about the Trinity, uh, what's a good uh, passage in the Bible to show us the Trinity, notice the Trinity in this passage. You've got the Son being baptized, you've got the Spirit descending like a dove, and you've got the voice from heaven, which is the Father. So you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all represented right here uh, in this passage of Scripture. So I, I think that's just really interesting uh, and very unique to help us see uh, the Godhead there. So, but the, for the focus of this, we see Isaiah, the prophecy here, uh, being fulfilled through John the Baptist, uh, that he is the one heralding, he's the one preaching, uh, he's the one that's foretelling uh, of the one to, to come. So the prophecy says... That for the Messiah to come, there's got to be this herald. There's got to be this person that's preaching, saying, prepare the way of the Lord. He's coming, because Isaiah prophesied about it. So then John the Baptist now is that voice who is saying, prepare the way of the Lord. So just the, the narrative logic here, that if John the Baptist is the one saying this, if he is the one, if this is true fulfillment of prophecy there, then Jesus is is the Messiah. This equates Jesus with being God, essentially, is what, is what the notes are trying to tell us, is that if John is the herald for Yahweh, then Jesus' arrival is equated with the arrival of Yahweh. So this is God uh, in the flesh, okay? And so just some more evidence. We're, uh, we're just building a case that this is Jesus, that Jesus uh, conquered this, that Jesus provided this. Uh, because as you know, the Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, um, they should be in the class tonight because then this will prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of all these prophecies that they know uh, so well. Uh, so Jesus' initial victory over Satan. Again, remember, there's a spiritual battle, spiritual evil. They've got to conquer this spiritual evil. And so not only does he have to fulfill all these prophecies about him coming, he's got to fulfill the prophecies about him conquering uh, spiritual evil and Satan and death, hell, and the grave. And so um, three of the four gospel accounts situate Jesus' initial kingdom announcements around his baptism and subsequent testing in the wilderness. And Luke's account is an excellent example of this. Um, We'll read the bolded part since it's so much scripture. Um, But it says that, and he led him up and showed him, this is Satan showing Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world in a a moment of time. So notice here that Satan led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Remember how uh, Adam and Eve were up above all the kingdoms of the earth. They were up in this garden. So Satan tests Jesus by leading him up and showing him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. And so we know that Jesus answered him and said, you know, you shall only worship the Lord your God. Uh, But look down at the bottom, uh, the last bolded statement. It says, when the devil had finished every test, he left him until an opportune 
time. So we see that Jesus was tested. We talked about that Sunday, the testing of our faith, how we're appointed, appointed to that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I want us to compare um, Jesus' story to humanity's story and Jesus' story to Israel's story um, because Jesus' test is presented here as a, climat- a climatic next step of both the cosmic storyline in Genesis 1 through 3 and also Israel's storyline uh, that starts up in Genesis 12 and onward. So just look at some comparisons here uh, as we look at our chart together. Uh, Jesus' story, you see the divine son is tested in a wilderness. We'll look over to your right. Adam, the first son of God, is tested in a garden. So notice that comparison there. Then we see Satan test Jesus to take, over, to take power over the nations to a, a place described on high. Well, look at Adam and Eve. They were tested by a snake, which we know is a spiritual being, which is the opposer, which is Satan, uh, tested by the snake and eaten um, the high garden temple. So see the comparison there. Then we see Satan's test is about how Jesus will become the ruler of the world. And we see humanity's test is about how they will become co-rulers with God in, in the garden. And so just kind of notice the parallels there. It's very interesting. But then keep on reading about Je- Jesus and Israel. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Israel, 40 years in the wilderness. See the comparisons? Um, the wilderness is where Jesus obeys the will of the Father by not putting him to the test. The wilderness is where Israel is tested uh, t- Israel tested God and disobeyed the will of Yahweh, how they fell short. So this kind of draws the, the, you know, together here. In Jesus' first and last test, he responds to Satan by quoting from Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 6, p- passages that recall Israel's failure in the wilderness. Yet again, it's just Jesus proving that he is fulfilling all that Israel could not. Um, and so I think that's just important for us um, to understand, I think that Jesus is here reversing the failure of Israel in the wilderness, so proving himself as Israel's true royal priest. Okay? He is the true royal priestly representative who can fulfill the nation's calling before God. Okay? So um, this is, again, we're just building that case uh, that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, but look at Jesus' mission to inaugurate God's heavenly kingdom. Okay? So um, if If uh, we were in this heavenly kingdom before, we were walking with God, we were ruling over everything, and we were uh, in this spiritual state and having the tree of life in the middle of the garden, which we see represents the holies of holy, uh, this ultimate spiritual thing. Uh, Well, Jesus has got to help restore all that. And, and so uh, notice how, we're gonna, as we're going to read some scriptures, how when Jesus uh, announces the kingdom of God is here, that he starts to pull heaven down to earth. There's heavenly principles that he's pulling down to earth and it's totally shaking up the world and the Bible is recording them as miracles, right? This is, this is what happens in the heavens. It's natural for this, but when he pulls it down to the earth, they're like, wow, this is uh, not the same that we're used to. This is something new and the Bible says that it's miracles. So you see here in Matthew 4 that Jesus went about announcing the arrival of God's kingdom and he brought God's reign to a to bear on lives of the Israelites and non-Israelites living around Galilee. And Matthew describes it here. It says, Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. And what was he doing? He was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. What's the kingdom? It's the kingdom of God. It's, it's this restored state that, that we can be back with God again. And what is he doing? He's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. 
And then uh, the last little bolded there, uh, um, various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Why is he healing them? Because there is no sickness, there is no disease in the kingdom of God. And so he's bringing this to earth. He's showing how uh, dark and deprived humanity is on earth and how um, broken it is. And then when he brings heaven to earth, he's he there's healing that takes place. Um, and so Matthew here is equating Jesus's announcement of the kingdom of God with two types of activity, teaching or announcing, but as well as healing. I think that that's important for us to notice. Uh, notice also that these healings are for people who are sick, along with people who suffer from what modern Western culture would call mental illness, um, and, which is a sickness of the brain, of course. And so we can gather from not only this account, but a lot of other accounts that Jesus' view of the world, his view of sickness and mental illness and uh, even death is a sign of the world's captivity to the power of spiritual evil. And so we talked about this before on a Sunday with, uh, with demon uh, possession and stuff like that. Uh, not everybody that uh, has sickness or mental illness is demonized, but a lot are. And we see that a lot of people that are um, uh, suffering from chronic sickness and mental illness and, and all this depression, all this kind of stuff is because it's demonically induced. It is a spiritual evil in this world that, that is, and that's why Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, but also preaching liberation and freedom and being set free from these things. Uh, Luke 13 and Matthew 12, you see in your notes, um, is, is prime examples of how Jesus's ministry of healing is portrayed as an act of liberation from humanity's captivity to the spiritual evil. Uh, you can just even notice some of the bolded words there. Uh, Luke 13, the first one, uh, a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, okay? She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. And then we see that reiterated in the last paragraph there, whom the Satan, uh, notice that, we learned about that, the Satan, remember ha, Remember how they put the word ha? We learned that a couple of sessions ago. Um, how the Satan has bound, bound her for 18 years, you know, 18 years long. Uh, then we read Matthew 12, uh, the demoniac, the demonized man. Uh, Jesus healed him. Um, and then down at the bottom it says, But if it's by the Spirit of God that I drive out demon, the demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties the strong man up? Then he can plunder his house. And so both of these stories, Jesus, is, Jesus describes his ministry of healing in the language of confrontation, uh, confrontation with spiritual evil and liberation from these spiritual powers. Uh, Jesus viewed his healings as a kind of offensive battle, uh, you know, going to war in the spiritual realm, in the heavenlies. Is how Jesus saw um, his ministry of healing, uh, you know, and, and, and on the topic of sickness, a lot of people, they, um, they try to figure out, they're just like, okay, is this sickness um, self-induced sickness or is this demonically induced sickness, right? Because that's ultimately you have two types. Uh, both types, whether it's self-induced sickness or uh, demonically induced sickness can affect you for generations unless, that, unless, some kinda, unless it's broke. Um, when we talk about like self-induced, that's because we made a choice and it caused sickness on our body, right? Like um, whether we ate something, you know, it thought something, you know, you ex you, mental illness can cause physical sickness. You're, how you think can cause uh, sickness. Um, and then you have this demonically induced um, sickness as well. But Jesus... 
the, the, the key point here, the key thing to know is that Jesus is setting us free from this captivity that we have. Um, and I think it's important for us to note also that he invited his followers to view themselves as participants in the arrival of God's kingdom. Uh, we don't have time to read the Sermon on the Mount, but you can write down Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. Um, this, is the whole, this is all talking about Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 is all talking about how we are participants in proclaiming God's kingdom, that we are to be doing this as well. Um, even at the center of his prayer, the, you know, the famous uh, prayer uh, you see in your notes in Matthew 6, um, Jesus is inviting his followers to say this, to pray this. And even in it, it says for heaven to come down, for you know, God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and so we, we see that we get to pray this, participate in this. Um, you see in your notes uh, following Matthew 6, you see a, a bolded statement that uh, is the main point here. Um, within the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this means that God's kingdom displays itself through the behavior of Jesus' followers as they imitate his own mission and way of life. And so just to take it a step further beyond proving that Jesus is the one, that Jesus is the answer, he is the fulfillment, us as followers of Jesus now have been tasked with this command to go and to preach that kingdom, to go and to preach that gospel. And what's the Bible say? Signs and wonders will follow those who believe. And so we too are to be empowered. We can't just say, oh, well, Jesus is the answer and sit on that. We've got to go preach that as well and live that out as well. Uh, so that's just something important for us to understand is that we as Jesus' followers should behave like Jesus and imitate Jesus and set the captive free as well uh, and, and deliver people from that and heal people from that. Uh, it's not us doing the healing, it's God flowing through us uh, in that. So I think that's important to note. Uh, then as we keep on uh, going, we're going to, our last little bit here, uh, we're going to look at very briefly Paul and how in the New Testament, how Paul and his letters uh, referenced Jesus as the new humanity. He gives us some more insight into Jesus conquering this spiritual evil, uh, but also he starts to reference Jesus as uh, this new humanity, if you will. So you've got some scripture references in front of you. Colossians uh, 1, 2, and 3. Uh, I want us to notice in these passages that Jesus is the, tr is the truly human image of God who has defeated the spiritual powers of darkness in his death and resurrection. So look at uh, Colossians 1, that 13 through 16 there. Paul uses the language of firstborn and the uh, kingdom of the son, uh, which is actually recalling Psalm 89, and the image of God, which is recalling Genesis 1. He also draws upon the imagery of Daniel 7 that we briefly talked about. Um, and so we see all that in that one passage there where it says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so we see here how he's referring back to a lot of fulfillment of a lot of scriptures. Uh, in the Colossians 2.15 one, he's describing Jesus' death as his victory over the power of evil. And Paul is combining the ideas of Genesis 3.15 with the gospel announcement of Jesus' resurrection. It says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, triumphing over them uh, by the cross. So we see there's some correlation there uh, combining the idea of Genesis 3.15 with that a gospel announcement of Jesus' resurrection. 
And then in Colossians 3, uh, Paul then extends Jesus' new humanity to include those who trust in Jesus, that's us, and give their allegiance to him. They will find themselves being transformed into a new kind of humanity that Jesus pioneered on our behalf. Okay, so this is where we come into play. Do not lie to one another since you put aside the old humanity. That's the old Adam. Remember, Adam means humanity. You put aside the old humanity with its evil practices and have put on the new humanity who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Remember, that's the same language as Genesis 1. and We created man in, in our image, in our likeness. So uh, Jesus is restoring us. We're being renewed to that. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, uh, whatever that other word is, slave and free man. But the Messiah is all and in all. So God is all and in all. Um, and so that's just a, a, an extraordinary passage where we find that we are being transformed. Us as believers, as followers of Christ, are being transformed into a new kind of humanity. And Jesus is the pioneer of this humanity. Um, and so let's talk about, um, almost lastly, I think we might have a little bit more, but talk about the resurrection of the new humanity. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul offers his most developed thoughts on the nature of, of Jesus' resurrection and how it, how it pr provides a solution to the problem that was created in Genesis 1-3. through um, We'll hit the bolded words just for sake of time because, again, this is a lot of content. Um, it says, For since death came through a human, the first resurrection of the dead also comes through a human. Then it goes on to say, Then the end will come he, when he hands over the kingdom of God hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And then the last sentence there, for he has put everything under his feet. So we see here that Paul presents Jesus as a new Adam. And remember that word Adam means humanity. It was humanity's rebellion leading to death that prevented humans from being God's eternal partners who could rule over heaven and earth. Remember that was the goal for us to, as humans to be eternal partners with God who can rule over heaven and earth, but it was because of our rebellion, our sin, that we fell and it was leading to death. And so this right here is precisely the problem that the resurrection of Jesus solves. So why is the resurrection of Jesus important? What does it solve? It solves this problem right there. It opens up the way for a new humanity who cannot, who cannot die to be God's covenant partners in, in ruling creation. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus is presently the only new human who exists in the resurrected new creation state. So uh, we see that there in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Uh, there's even more we can, again, we're, we're going to speed up a little bit. As you see, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 um, in your notes there, I think that um, it's just important to notice that Paul quotes from Psalm 8 uh, in this. Uh, showing that he equates Jesus with the new humanity. Uh, the climax of Paul's argument in this chapter is an exploration of the new creation humanity, who is a prototype of the risen Jesus. Um, this passage here, like I said, we won't read it for time's sake, but you see how much is bolded there. It's an extremely dense paragraph. Uh, we're gonna, you see words like physical and spiritual. Uh, our English vocabulary doesn't really, it's inadequate 
in the translation of that, of what Paul's trying to say there in the Greek. Um, but the, Paul's larger point is that different creatures have different kinds of bodies. And so that we have heavenly bodies, uh, you know, we have earthly bodies and all that. The, the larger point here is that the resurrection body of Jesus is a body. It's just a different kind. And so when it's resurrected, uh, it's a new humanity. It's a resurrected body um, there. So uh, a lot of content there. Uh, Paul is essentially just saying that, that he is, that the risen Jesus exists as a new kind of humanity whose origins, values, and nature are not determined by physical constraints. The, you know, so there's no physical constraints of creation in the new resurrected Jesus, this new kind of humanity. Um, the risen Jesus is the first prototype of a spirit-empowered humanity whose life can be given to others through the power and the presence of God's spirit. And so once Jesus resurrected, went back to heaven, what did he say? The spirit's going to come. The helper's going to come. And so now we, we get this. Um, so in Paul's mind, just to kind of sum this up real, uh, with Paul, in Paul's mind, the future resurrection of the new humanity is the grand fulfillment of the storyline that we see in Genesis 1 and, 1 and 2. Um, so this, this future resurrection of a new humanity. So speaking of new humanity, let's look... Uh, briefly here, I know it's like drinking from a fire hydrant, uh, but this is our last little section um, leading up, just kind of proving our case that Jesus is the answer. The new humanity and the new creation. All right, so um, as we travel through, we hit the Gospels, let's end with Revelation. In Revelation, the final book of the Bible, John the visionary depicts the new creation as a new Jerusalem Eden temple, which recalls Genesis 1 and 2, but it also carries it further into new territory. So notice some of this. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Okay. And then in Revelation 22, then he showed me a river of water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and the lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the rivers, there was a tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will, will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of any light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them. And they will reign forever and ever. So we see John here taking it a step further uh, having this new creation, uh, this new heaven, this new earth, this new Jerusalem, this new temple, a uh, new garden. John is combining the images of the new Eden from all over Hebrew scriptures. He's taking this and making it into one ultimate reality. Um, and he says that they will reign forever and ever. This is clearly recalling the original human vocation that we read about, the, the, the calling of humanity, that how we are to reign with God forever and ever. Uh, John is now tying it all back in and saying that 
uh, humanity as the image of God reigns as God's partner and children forever in creation. So to kind of sum it up, once all creation joins Jesus and the new humanity in the resurrection, God's ultimate purpose for creation will be fulfilled. So it's coming, it's, it will be fulfilled. And this is all possible in and through the divine human partner who loved us and gave himself for us so that his eternal life could become our own. And so that's why we see Jesus dying for our sins. That's why we see Jesus as the Messiah. That's why it was important that he resurrected from the grave. That was important, why it was important that he ascended back to heaven and the Holy Spirit came upon us. Uh, and so we see this new humanity happening. And it's not, this is at the end. Uh, here on earth, we see that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And so for some, we think, well, heaven's our home. Well, heaven's just temporary because the Bible's clear, as we read, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, there won't be a sea, a moon, a sun, uh, because God himself is going to illuminate everything. And so that is the goal for us to be restored to God, to live in this new humanity, this new uh, garden, if you will, uh, forever and ever. So anyways, I know that was... Um, a lot of content, um, and I skipped a lot in my page because it was a lot more content. But, um, but anyway, so um, we're going to end officially the session. We'll make time for some Q&A. We'll do our best to walk through some of that. Uh, and then, like always, we're going to pray around our table and so uh, to take time for prayer. So um, any thoughts, any questions, comments come to mind tonight? Yes, Mr. Tim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in, in, in Genesis 1, when, when it starts to describe uh, the Garden of Eden and what it is, it's, it's, it's where heaven and earth overlap. And it's this high temple place, the highest place on earth. Um, and so uh, I'll have to refresh my memory. And somebody in the room might remember uh, we talked about that in some of the other sessions. You, you guys were back there serving. You don't get to uh, catch those. But when we walked through the garden and the scriptures and all that it says about it, it talked about, uh, and we, we looked at some of the prophecies of it as well and some of the psalm, uh, psalms say about it, how it was this high temple mount that heaven and earth met and... Um, and that's where, that's where God walked with man. And then when we uh, rebelled, we fell from that uh, down to earth. Um, so, yeah, I know that wasn't a direct answer to your question, but that's off the top of my head what I can remember that we studied. Um, yeah, and I could pull those notes up and give them to you um, from the previous sessions. So. Yes. What do I know about the ideas of new heaven, new earth being metaphorically speaking of the new, new covenant? Um, I don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Somebody else might. I don't know. Look into that. So. Okay. All right. Put that in my phone so I don't forget. All right. Anybody else? Thoughts, questions, comments? taking notes all right cool all right well I know it's a lot to process I mean I know like my first time going through everything and studying and all that I was like 
let me do this one more time. And then went through it again, and then went through it again. Um, so I know I understand it's a lot, um, a lot of stuff. But uh, my hope is, and through these seven sessions, that you just um, got to tackle some of the harder things in the Bible, like that we just didn't shy away from them, that we leaned into them. Uh, you might be leaving uh, these, all these sessions more confused than when you started seven weeks ago. Um, but uh, my hope is, is that at least you looked at it and said, okay, it's there. Let me see why it's there. Let me pray about it. Let me lean into it um, and try to, you know, figure out why is it, why is it there and, and, and you know, why is, what's God say about it and study it out. Um, and ultimately, I hope that it helps you in your faith, your Christian faith, better understand what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, and what Christ did for us and how um, he's not just saving us from sin, but it's a whole bigger picture there of what Christ did.